Great. Well, good morning. Um, can I just say again, thank you so much uh, for having us this morning, uh, and especially for your prayers uh, for, for me and Catherine over the last few weeks. It's meant so much to know that you guys have been praying for us as well. Um, so thank you so much for that. Um, I'm really looking forward to spending the day uh, and, uh, and looking at this passage. So why don't we pray together again as we start. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you speak to us by it, that you reveal yourself to us, and that you change us by it. And so, Father, we pray that you would uh, speak to us this morning, you would uh, show us your Son, the Lord Jesus, uh, and that you would make us more like him because of what we hear this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. Great, well, there's, there's one other thing um, that you need to know about me, and that is I'm a big film fan. I, I really enjoy films. I, 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 could, I love going to the cinema. Just the smell of popcorn gets me excited. Um, I'm a big film fan, and what I thought it would be good to do this morning would be for you to imagine uh, that you won an Oscar for your life. So imagine that your whole life got an Oscar. You, you, everything you've ever done on this kind of big cosmic award stage and you've got to get up and give your speech your acceptance speech you've got a minute or so to do that and the question I want you to think about is who would you thank who would you thank and particularly how much would you thank them if you've ever watched the Oscars before you know there's a a not so subtle way of giving a speech that sounds like you're thanking people but is actually just boasting about yourself. You you know how it goes. Uh, I'm just so shocked to win this award. Uh, A year ago, I was a nobody. But now look at me. Uh, And I really want to thank everyone, literally everyone I've ever met. I I want to thank the guy that makes me a coffee every single morning, that little guy down the road. Without him, I wouldn't be the star that I am today. In other words, I am amazing. I did this. Yes, some people helped me along the way a little bit, but at the end of the day, it was me. It was all me. Who would you thank? And actually, the bigger question I want us to think about this morning is if you were accepting an award speech for your life, where would God come in? Is God the little guy that that makes you a cup of coffee every morning? Is he your agent, your publisher, Where does God come in? It's a big question for us to think about, and it was a big question at the time of the Reformation. In fact, the question of God's role and our role in salvation became one of, if not the most significant questions that led Martin Luther and others to moving away from the Roman Catholic Church. So it's a big question for us. It was a big question for the Reformers. And it was also a big question for the early church. How do we know that? Well, in our passage, we see it is precisely the question that Paul, the Apostle Paul, is answering. He writes this section of his letter to the Ephesians in order to get them and us to evaluate our lives and decide who did it. Decide who's responsible. And he does that by describing this stark contrast for us. The contrast of death and life. And the first thing he says is that we were all dead in sin. 
So look back at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. Verse 1 says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. Now straight away, there's something slightly odd, I think, about what Paul says there, isn't there? He says you were dead and you are living. What's he talking about? The death that Paul describes here in Ephesians 2, it's not physical, but spiritual. That's why he says you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Those are simply words that describe our rejection of and rebellion against God. Sin separates us from God. It cuts us off from him. And so we're dead to him. Dead to the one who gives life. Uh, but, but this spiritual death, well, it, it's not the death of a, of a quietly resting corpse. No, it, it's far worse than that. Paul here is describing people who are dead, but active. Active in what way? Look at verse 2. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Paul says spiritually dead people are active in that they follow the ways of the world. And that describes something that I'm sure most of us can recognize. It it describes the kind of behavior behavior that chooses to go with the world's agenda rather than God's agenda. So when it comes to morality, our society says if it feels right and it doesn't hurt anyone, well, it can't be wrong, can it? Just, just go ahead. If, you, if you're not going to hurt anyone and, and it's what you want to do, then, then just do it. Or, or when it comes to, to sex and sexuality, as you've been thinking about in your evening services, the world says your body is your own. Sex is just this self-centered bodily function. And so, you know, sleep with whoever you want, whenever you want. Or when it comes to spirituality, God is this optional lifestyle choice. You can take him or leave him, but just keep it to yourself. Don't talk to me about it. And Paul says the spiritually dead person, well, they just, they just kind of float along with the world's agenda, float along with the crowd. They go the world's way rather than God's way. They follow the ways of the world. But as well as following the culture, Paul says they follow someone else. Look at verse 2 again. When you follow the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Now here Paul is talking about Satan. Again, in our culture, I think we struggle with the idea of a real devil, don't we? We've done such a great job of fictionalizing anything to do with devils and demons, that the idea that any of these things might actually exist in real life, outside of books and films, well, it's just a bit silly, isn't it? And that mindset kind of creeps into the church. And so we're often happy to talk about fighting sin, happy to talk about resisting the temptations of society. But if someone brings up Satan over coffee, well, it gets a bit awkward, doesn't it? But if we can put aside men in red tights for just a moment, we see here in Ephesians 2 and then later, if you carried on reading into chapter 6, Paul says, no, there is a real enemy There's a real enemy. And Satan's key strategy has always been to get people to doubt God's word, 
And so those words that he whispered to Adam and Eve in the garden, he, he still uses today. Did God really say that you can't satisfy your desires like that? Surely if it, if it looks good and feels right, you should just do it. And anyway, don't you know that you can be like God if you just live by your own standards, live by your own rules? What right does, does God have to make demands of you? What right does he have to say with, about what you should do with your time, your money, your work, your pleasure, your body? You see, Satan tempts us to doubt and then to disobey God's word. And ever since Adam and Eve, Paul says here that people have been following the lies of the devil rather than the words of God. And so we follow the world, we follow the devil, and then in verse 3, Paul says, we follow the cravings of our flesh. Look at verse 3. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Now, when Paul talks about flesh here, he doesn't just mean our our physical cravings. No, he's talking about all of us. Our whole sinful nature with all of its thoughts and desires and longings. And so whilst that might include the perhaps more obvious sinful cravings of pornography or or of selfish kind of materialism, it also includes the more subtle longings of attention and self-glorification. The desire to be thought of as number one. For the whole world to revolve around me. The longing for things just to be the way I want them. Paul says we follow the cravings and desires of our sinful nature. And so when it comes to our sin, we might like to try and defend ourselves by by blaming things. Blaming our upbringing. Blaming the culture. Blaming our financial situation, our spouse. Even blaming God. But Paul says, no, at the end of the day, no one makes you sin. We do what we want to do. We do what our sinful natures want to do. And so this is what spiritually dead people look like. They are dead, but active. They follow the ways of the world, the lies of the devil, and their own sinful desires. And as a result, end of verse 3, we all deserve God's wrath. The Bible is clear. Our rejection of God cannot go unpunished. That God is rightfully angry at what we're doing here. Rightfully angry at the way that we, are, we have treated him. And so he will punish rebels like us. And so in these first few verses, we get this, this bleak picture of humanity. A picture of ourselves that is utterly helpless. Paul says, you, you are dead and you deserve God's anger. It's a picture of helplessness. I don't know whether you've ever, ever felt helpless before. One occasion in, in my past stands out. I, I was about 12 or 13 years old, and we were, um, we were on the beach in Cornwall, family holiday in Cornwall. And I was playing that game with a friend where, I'm sure you've, you've all done it, where you, where you dig a hole and then someone jumps in and you bury them up to the neck and, uh, in sand. We were playing that game, and it was my turn to be buried. Uh, but this time we thought uh, we would dig the hole extra deep. 
We dig it extra deep so that I could stand up in it uh, all the way in. So we dug the hole, in I I jumped, and my friend started to fill in the sand uh, until the sand came right up to my neck. And and I couldn't move a muscle. I was stuck. There was no way I was going anywhere. I was helpless. Uh, And it was all fun and games. It was all hilarious uh, until the first wave came within about a meter of my head. And then the second wave came straight over my head. Suddenly, it wasn't fun anymore. And I was absolutely terrified. My friend ran to get my dad, who was way down the beach. And in the meantime, another couple of waves came in over my head. And I could do nothing. I was helpless. Now, my dad came running over and managed to dig me out of the sand before it all got too serious. But without him, I was in serious trouble. By myself, I could do nothing. I was helpless. And that is the situation Paul says we find ourselves in here. We are helpless. It's a bleak picture of humanity, but it is a vital picture. And so can I say, if, you, if you're here this morning and, and you're thinking about Christianity, if you're considering Christianity, then this is something that you need to come to terms with. The Christian faith includes admitting and seeing that without God we are dead. We are helpless. And there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. And if you're a Christian here this morning, it's still crucial that you understand this. You see, if you're anything like me, then you'll find it all too easy to to really kind of forget that this is what you were like. Forget that this was your situation. I find it really easy to look back at my life before I was a Christian and paint myself in a, in a better light than Paul does here. To think, oh, come on, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't that bad. I never really rejected God. I, I sort of just held him at arm's length. I, I went to church every week. I had no problems with the Christians. I, I, I listened quietly during the Bible talk bit. And at the end of the day, like I've told you already this morning, I made the decision. I looked into Christianity. I, I did the research. I don't think I was quite as dead as some other people that I know. If you're tempted to think like that, then Paul says, stop killing yourself. You were dead. And there's no such thing as more or less dead. There's just dead. That was your situation. And it's only when you understand that that you begin to grasp the enormity of what God has done for you. It's only when you understand how helpless you really are that you see how much you really do need God's grace. And so the great reformer Martin Luther put it like this. He said, God has surely promised his grace to the humble. That is, to those who mourn over and despair of themselves. But a man cannot be thoroughly humble till he realizes that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, efforts, will, and works, and depends absolutely on the will, pleasure, and work of another, of God alone. And it's the work of God that Paul moves on to in the next part of our passage. He says, we were all dead in sin, but God has made us alive by grace. So just look at verse 4. Verse 4. 
But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Last summer, I I took a a group of teenagers from my church back in Danbury to Ethiopia. Uh, And we did a number of different things whilst we were there for the the few weeks, including um, painting the inside of a school. Now, I don't know whether anyone's been to Ethiopia before, but Addis Ababa, the capital, is incredibly dirty. It's hugely overcrowded and the pollution is horrendous. And so it only really takes uh, living there for a couple of weeks before your snot begins to turn black because of the smog. It, it is gross. And so you can imagine how, how horribly dirty some of the buildings are in Addis. And that was the case with this school that we went to. The, the walls were black with dirt and, and kind of thick with grime and dust. It, it was really bad. And after... A few days of hard work, cleaning and painting. The difference was amazing. One of the girls in the group took some of those sort of before and after photos. And as you look at them, it just looked like a completely new building. The transformation was amazing. And here in Ephesians 2, Paul is describing something similar. It is similar, but it is far more impressive than a bunch of teenagers painting a school. It's the ultimate before and after, isn't it? He says, if, you, if you're a Christian, then you were dead, but God has made you alive. You were dead, but God has made you alive. Back in Ephesians chapter 1, he explains that Christ was dead, but that God in his mighty power raised him to new life. And so now in chapter 2, he says, God has done the same for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so as you thought about last week, when you looked at faith alone, if we are joined to Christ by faith, if we are in him by faith, then where he goes, we go too. So Christ has been raised to life, which means Christians are raised to life. Christ has been seated in the heavenly realms. And so verse 5, we have been seated in the heavenly realms. Do you see, this is the new spiritual reality for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. We are no longer dead, but alive and seated with him in heaven. In other words, as we're seeing over these, well, as you're seeing over these weeks, God has made us alive through faith alone in Christ alone. But the question is, why? Why has he done this? What what possible reason does God have to bring rebellious sinners from death to life? Well, it's been made clear to us so far in Ephesians 2, hasn't it, that it can't be anything to do with us. We're, We're dead. We're rebels. We're helpless. No, the reason God does this is by his grace alone. That's the repeated theme, isn't it, in in these verses. Verse 5, it is by grace you have been saved. Verse 7, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. Verse 8, again, for it is by grace you have been saved. Paul says, grace, grace, grace. That is why God has done this. And when it comes to grace, there, there are two elements that I think we've got to get our heads around. It is undeserved and it's a gift. And so how much grace is involved depends on how undeserved it is. And what sort of gift 
it is. So imagine uh, that I um, gave Chris uh, a cup of coffee after the service. Uh, that would be a small act of grace. I, I don't know Chris. I've, I've, I briefly met her at the start of the service. Um, and so in some senses, she's, she's not really done anything to earn a cup of coffee for me, from me. She doesn't deserve it in that, in that sense. And at the end of the day, it's just, it's just a cup of coffee, as lovely as I'm sure your church coffee is. But, but suppose I had met Chris before, a, a number of times. We, we go way back. And every time that she saw me, she was incredibly rude to me. Uh, she'd laugh at me. She'd spread rumors about me. She'd insult me. And now I give her the cup of coffee. That's more of an act of grace, isn't it? It, it really is undeserved. Now swap my coffee for my life savings. Everything that I have, everything that I own, I I decide just to give over to Chris. Do you see? The more undeserved and the bigger the gift, the greater the act of grace. And so now think about what Paul is describing here in Ephesians 2. He says, we have rejected God. We have followed the world, the devil, and our desires. And so we deserve his wrath, his right anger. But instead, God has raised us and seated us with his son, Jesus Christ, in glory. Do you see why Paul describes this as incomparable grace in verse 7? It's astonishing. We were dead And God has made us alive by grace. And it's in that contrast that we we begin to see why that little word alone is so important. You see, the Roman Catholic Church, well, they they thought that grace is important. They think that grace is important. They taught back in Luther's day that, that every Christian needs God's grace. But the problem was they they treated grace a bit like a startup loan for a business. They thought it was something that you could receive from God to kind of give you a kickstart, a boost to get you up and running. And so salvation, when it became this combination of your hard work, your good works, along with a bit of help from the bank, a bit of help from grace, a bit of grace from God. But Luther and the others realized that, well, this just made no sense of passages like Ephesians 2. They understood that, that dead people don't need a boost. They need a resurrection. And that is something that God does for us, not with us. Which means salvation is, is less like a start-up loan for a business and more like Richard Branson just giving you virgin. Salvation must be by grace alone because dead people cannot raise themselves. There is nothing that we can do to make ourselves alive. Not our good works, not our upbringing, not our morality. Without God's grace, we are as helpless as I was that day on the beach in Cornwall. We are entirely dependent on God's rescue, entirely dependent on his grace. And I hope hope what Paul is saying here makes at least some sort of logical sense to us. Dead people cannot raise themselves. They need someone to intervene. And so so we're dependent on God acting. We're dependent on his grace. 
However, I know that whilst that might make sense in our heads, we also need to see what it means for our lives. We need to answer that so what question. And, and that is where Paul moves on to the last few verses of this passage. He says, you were dead in sin, but God has made you alive by grace. And that means there is nothing for you to boast in. There is nothing for you to boast in. So look at verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You see, while grace alone might be a concept that can make logical sense to us, I still think it's something that we find hard to accept, whether we're a Christian this morning or not. And that's partly because we live in a culture that says that we have to earn everything. We have to earn everything. We're ranked and judged all of our lives, kind of compared to everyone else around us. And so when someone comes along and says, well, even your best performance isn't good enough, you can never be good enough, that salvation is a gift, well, well, people get offended, don't they? Their response to grace can so often be, how dare you? How dare you suggest that I'm not good enough? How, how dare you say that I can't make it on my own? I don't need help. I can do this myself. But grace alone says, no, you can't. You can't earn this. God did it all. And that means there is nothing for you to boast in. And so when it comes to that Oscar speech of your life, God isn't your agent. He's not your publisher. He is your creator. Verse 10 says, We are his handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Do you see? Even our good works are the result of God's grace in our lives. Which means it's not that God's grace does the initial work of saving us, but then, then it's over to you. Then it's you and your good works, your hard work that makes sure you stay saved. No. Now that would be to treat God like the start-up loan, wouldn't it? No, we are saved by grace alone. And that means our salvation is entirely down to God. From beginning to end, there really is nothing for us to boast about. And as hard as that might be for us to accept, the reality is it should be wonderfully, wonderfully reassuring. The fact that we don't have to earn our salvation should be a huge comfort to us. Just listen to Luther again. He says, Now now that God has taken my salvation out of the control of my will and put it under the control of his and promised to save me not according to my works, but, but according to his own grace and mercy, I have comfortable certainty that he is faithful, and he will not lie to me, and that he is also great and powerful, so that no devils or oppositions can break him or pluck me from him. Do you see what Luther is saying? The fact that our salvation is down to God and not us is a wonderful thing. It means we can have, as he says, comfortable certainty that God has saved us and he will not let us go. 
Salvation by grace alone means we cannot boast, we should not boast. And that is a wonderful thing. So as we close, think about that Oscar speech. Think about the conversations that you'll have this week, after this service, in the office, in the week, at school, around the dinner table. How much of those conversations will be about you? About what you have done and and how great you are? And how much of them will be about God? What he has done and how great he is? Paul says we were dead in sin, but God has made us alive by grace alone. Let's pray. Our loving and gracious Heavenly Father, we, we praise you this morning for these words in Ephesians. Father, we recognize that without you, we are utterly helpless. There is nothing that we can do, and we deserve your anger. And so we praise you for your grace. Your grace that you have shown us in the Lord Jesus Christ by sending him to pay for our sin and by raising him to new life so that by faith in him we can have and share in that new life too. Father, I pray that this morning we would not trust in our works, but we would trust in the Lord Jesus. And we would leave here praising you for your amazing grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.